You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name's Dean. It's good to gather as a church this morning. There's certainly more to being a Christian than going to church on Sunday morning, but there's definitely not less. Uh, so it's good to participate together in God's design. We're calling this series Dear Church because it's exactly the book of Revelation. It's a letter to the church, to specific local churches, not to freak them out or to make future predictions or to scare them, uh, but rather to encourage them in faithfulness. The book of Revelation was never designed to be weird. It was designed to give the Christians at that time strength and encouragement that God has been fulfilling his promises since the beginning and he's going to continue to do so until Jesus comes back. Uh, So the book of Revelation is for us. Uh, It is a universal letter to the church even though it was written to specific churches, and the call upon our lives is to be good stewards of God's word, to see that it is an amazing act of grace that our God has actually spoken to us in the scriptures, and that we make sure that we are faithful to what he has said. Over and over again, it says, he who has ears, let him hear. We don't just want to, and that, that's just not an audible acceptance of it, it's a hearing in such a way that produces action in your life, that we respond to the news that God has given us in the scriptures. So let's pray. Then we'll jump into week five of Dear Church, seeing two different churches today, Sardis and Philadelphia. Not to be confused with Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, the football fans who booed Santa one time during the game. Not that church. Uh, So we're going to pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. Again, we are thankful that we have the words of our God. How amazing uh, to have the scriptures. Lord, we ask to be found faithful. As we all the churches in our cities, they gather today, as we know we're not the only ones doing this, I ask that the gospel be proclaimed from every pulpit in this city. We ask you the enemy who we know is real out of this place and out of our community. Uh, we ask that you will spur us on based on our knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us to live our lives for Jesus and make much of his mission. We ask you to fill us in the Holy Spirit. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here's what we see out of the gate, writing to Sardis. This is Jesus talking to John, who has been exiled on the island of Patmos uh, because of his faith, was exiled there as kind of a sentence, you could say. And Jesus tells him this, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. Think about that just for a moment. I'm gonna pause right there. That Jesus knows our works works. There's not even a deep thought to add to that, just the reality and understanding that Jesus, the one we're told in Colossians 1, holds all things together, that by him all things are made, that that Jesus who died and rose again, ascended into heaven, is going to come again, knows our works. Let's never for a minute lose light of that reality. You have a reputation for being alive. You're a pretty big deal around here. People speak very highly of you but you are dead. What they're seeing is not actually the reality. But here Jesus says, I know. They might not know, but I know. He goes, so what's the, what's the solution here? And notice we see patience in the warning. When we see commands and warnings in scripture, we should first see them as acts of grace. That God in his holiness is not in that moment punishing us as our sins deserve. But since he punished Jesus in our place, he is now calling those who are redeemed, his people, towards change, towards repentance. And encourage them to live their lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he tells them, here's who you are. People think you're alive, think you're vibrant, but you're dead. 
Dead spiritually is what he means here. He goes, so be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. As in, there are some remnants who are alive in your church, and if those people aren't strengthened, then basically he's going to take their church away. I always say that every church is one generation away from dying. Every church, from the startup church to the most vibrant large in America and across the world, is one generation away from dying. So every generation of Christians should hear these words and receive these words and want to see the local church go forward by reaching the next generation. And that's not just going to be by accommodating them, but actually telling them what the word of God has to say and encouraging them to follow it. He says, strengthen those who are there, for I have not found your works complete before my God. There's things that are lacking from you. Remember, I'm the one who sees, he says, who knows all things. And again, it looks good, like my friends from Texas say, all hat, no cattle. Like it looks good, but the substance isn't actually there. He goes, remember then. A reminder, over and over again in the scriptures, we see God's solution for us to be reminding his people of who he is and of his faithfulness and of who they are. Remember then what you have received, which is the good news of the gospel, and heard, the good news of the gospel, the apostles' teachings, keep it, hold on to it. And he said, repent, as in turn from your sin and back to God. Remember, he's not talking to atheists or agnostics here. He's talking to people who appear to be religiously vibrant, but actually are internally dead. So if you're not alert, I will come like a thief. And you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. Jesus will return one day. And if we're not alert to his coming and aware of his coming and actually following Christ and living out our Christian faith, then we're certainly going to be caught off guard. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, as in the remaining faithful. And they will walk with me in white, a symbol of purity here, because they are worthy. Why are they worthy? One, Jesus has made them worthy by them receiving his righteousness, but also because they have remained faithful. They have kept the faith. Because in the same way, the one who conquers, and this is in the context of overcoming here, he said to every church in Revelation, he tells them to conquer, not by military might, but by being overcomers. So for them here, the conquerors are those who refuse to be dead, who actually are alive as they're perceived to be. And he says this great news for us, that I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Why? Because they are my children. Because I am with them, God says. That Jesus holds on to his bride. The shepherd holds on to his sheep and no one can take them away. Let anyone who has ears to listen, as in not just audibly hear this, but receive this, to what the Spirit says to the churches. What an important prayer to pray. God, give me ears to hear what it is that you have to say. So let's talk about Sardis. In New Testament times, the city of Sardis sat high atop a hill that intersected important trade routes. The Jewish community there was very wealthy. They were influential. They weren't as marginalized as they were in other places. They were prosperous as the rest of the city's residents. They seemed to be sheltered from a lot of harm, not facing persecution. And Sardis became known for kind of being overconfident people. Guess they had a little extra swag to them and their busy lifestyle. Their lack of seriousness eventually led to the city's demise twice when enemies actually breached the wall, their big and powerful sign of their might, 
and overtook their slumbering guards. Robert Mounts, in his Revelation commentary called the Book of Revelation, very creative, uh, wrote that Sardis was once one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world. And one of the reasons why was because of its wall. The city had a mountain fortress with walls that rose 1,500 feet above the valley, and this made the city unable to penetrate. But in 549 BC, the Persian king Cyrus defeated the city, and he did it right under the Sardinians' noses, Mounts writes. He sent someone to climb up a crevice that he found in the wall. My, has military strategy changed? If the watchmen of the city had been paying any attention, this is still Mounts, they would have seen the climber coming and could have easily defeated him. But they weren't paying any attention, so he climbed up all 1,500 feet of the wall, entered the city, and opened the front gates and let the Persian army in. Hit this amazing wall, and all a guy does is climb through a crevice and open the gates and says, come on. Because Sardis refused to remain watchful and alert, the Persians didn't even need to overcome the wall. They marched straight through the front gate and defeated the city. And you'd think after that, they'd they'd, learn their lesson over history, and the history doesn't repeat itself, but the same thing happened again in 2016 BC. So Jesus begins his letter to these Christians in Sardis by telling them to wake up, to be alert, and that definitely would have historically struck a chord. That wake up can simply be translated, be watchful. My friend Trevin Wax says this command would have cut to the hearts of Jesus' followers in Sardis because they knew the consequences of assuming their security and failing to remain alert. So this new generation here, and what do they now need to watch out for? Not the Persian army, not King Cyrus, but their actual faith they claim isn't merely about appearance and truly dead inside. That before they had physical things they needed to watch out for. And what's happening here is a spiritual warning. That they appear to be alive but are actually dead. And we see this theme throughout the scriptures that God cares a lot about our hearts and cares about our motivation. He calls the Pharisees, who were very devout, outwardly believer, or Jewish believers uh, in, in God, they were theists, they knew the Old Testament very well. He told them, he called them whitewashed tombs. That their tombs, their caskets, as we would call them today, were very nicely decorated, lots of money spent on the outside. But what's inside a casket? A dead, decaying body. Jesus said things like, oh, the outside of the cup, that, that looks really nice and clean. But the inside of the cup is actually filthy. We see this theme throughout the scriptures. So for conquering this church, conquering means making sure that's no longer true of them. And here is Jesus wanting to make sure they actually have a real motivation for what they're doing rather than simply their their reputation in the world that was very positive. You almost have to worry a little bit if your church's reputation is a little too positive in the community. Not because of the absence of love or anything like that, but if everyone agrees all the time and thinks you're great when you teach the truth of the scriptures, you almost have to wonder in a godless world whether or not you're actually really teaching the truth of the scriptures. And here's what he says in Revelation 2.18. The one whose eyes are like a fiery flame. 
describing Jesus here. Again, outwardly, everyone is applauding. You have a strong reputation, and here Jesus, with his eyes, can see right through all of that and see our works. Should that scare us? I don't think scared is really the solution. I think it should lead us to repentance because we see that God takes sin seriously and not just in doing this and not doing that, but God cares about our hearts. What drives us? What's the motivation for doing what we do? Because if it's not driven by a love for God, if it's not driven by our belief in the good news of the gospel, I'm afraid it's going to eventually go away. It's going to eventually cease as soon as the next cultural tidal wave comes your way. So Jesus is saying here that he sees through their religion. You know what it reminds me of a little bit is, is for what some people is the Lenten season or observing Lent. Um, I, think it's, I think if that's what you want to do and it's meaningful to you and I'm not hating on Lent, I don't do Lent. I'm like the most Protestant person on earth, uh, so I don't do Lent, uh, but if it's a meaningful part of your spiritual experience, I think that's a wonderful thing. But for a lot of people, it really is just sort of a, this is what you do. Like, I, I know people that, you know, gave up Diet Coke for Lent while they're still looking at porn. It's like, congratulations, right? It's like, okay, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like Jesus died on the cross, so I'm not eating chocolate for the next 40 days. You know, it's like, good for you. You know, God's so happy. It's just, it's just, it just can be that sort of thing, you know, where people are more committed to their willpower to, like, not eat carbs for 40 days than they actually are to Jesus. Again, disclaimer, disclaimer, I think for other people it can be very meaningful, but what's the difference? If you talk to someone who observes Lent versus someone who just sort of does Lent because you know, Fat Tuesday, everybody get trashed, then go get ashes on Wednesdays. This all makes such great sense, doesn't it? And so, what's the difference? Is for other people, Lent can be an experience for them uh, really to strengthen their faith because it allows them to maybe carve out more time or be more focused in their relationship with God. Right? It allows them maybe to pray more, to be more connected to the scriptures. I know some who read a devotional during Lent. Like, it's about Jesus and about the Easter season. It's not about, oh no, what are you giving up this year? What are you giving up this year? And I think that that kind of cultural Christianity, uh, that Jesus just sees right through that. Like he's not impressed with the fact that you're you know, not drinking Diet Coke or sweet tea for the next 40 days when our hearts aren't with him. When our motivation for doing it isn't God's glory and his grace and the goodness of the gospel. In other words, I'm a simple guy. Are you really about Jesus? But like, is it really about Christ? They had a great reputation, Sardis, but in reality, they were spiritually dead. They were the church of whitewashed tombs. I've told some of y'all this story before, but I grew up here, moved here when I was nine years old, but I'm actually, I was actually born in Fort Lauderdale. Go Canes, Elite Eight, let's go. Sorry, I had to get that in. Uh, but two o'clock, you know where I'll be. So, we, so if you're from Florida or are familiar with Florida, which a lot of you are, you know the further south you go, culturally, the more northern you get, right? You're at a, st right when the light turns green in South Florida, they honk at you a half second in if you don't go, right? Like, like that, that kind of culture. Then you college students move here from Miami and start honking at us in Tallahassee, so y'all ease up, okay? You're in our territory now, y'all chill a little bit. So we moved here, and it was pretty wild, but also my family, my mom was born in Rhode Island, Okay, like from New England. Uh, my dad's from Pennsylvania, and they grew up in Fort Lauderdale. So we were like not a Southern family at all. 
I mean, like, we didn't know about, like, monogramming everything your kid wears when they're a baby, and, like, backing into your parking spot if you drive a truck, you know, having a Yeti sticker on your car to let everybody know you like cold drinks. We didn't know about this kind of stuff, okay? We just, did, we just didn't know. When we first moved to Tallahassee, I thought we moved to the mountains. So I got in the car and said, Dad, we live in the mountains. From, like, flat and concrete Fort Lauderdale, we moved to Clarn Lakes, which back, you know, the crow flies is, like, 10 miles from the Georgia line. This is back in 1990, my dad moved here to open Deer Lake Middle School as an administrator, which was a construction site, then we moved here, a little Tallahassee history for you. So I got invited to go play at a friend's house, and that's what we called it back then, we didn't call them play dates, went to play at a friend's house, and I'm just getting all my, uh, my angst today, just feeling it. So, uh, but, so, so uh, I, after I hung out with my buddy, and I kind of had a new friend, it was great, just moved here, his mom sat me down, and she told me I wasn't gonna be able to come over anymore if I didn't change my manners. And I'm going, what in the world are you talking about? I'm like, did I chew with my mouth open? Was I disrespectful? You know, did I cut her off when she was talking? I'm trying, did I forget to say please? I'm like thinking of all these things. Well, we keep going in the conversation and come to find out I was not answering her questions and I was over there with yes ma'am and no ma'am. And if I didn't understand something she said to me, I would say excuse me or pardon or can you please repeat that rather than saying ma'am? See, in Tallahassee, all the kids where I lived, where I was growing up, they all answered adults' questions by saying yes ma'am and yes sir, no ma'am and no sir. Where I'm from in South Florida, you just say please and thank you. They think it's rude to say ma'am. They think you, you, you called them old. Like you just declared them eating dinner at Denny's at 4.45 p.m. I mean, that, that, that's, that's how they feel. But that was there and now I live here. So guess what I started doing instantly? I started saying yes ma'am and yes sir. No ma'am and no sir. But we never said it at our house. Because in our family culture, that's not considered manners or not manners. We had to say please, thank you, excuse me, things like that. My daughter had her dance competition in Montgomery, Alabama yesterday. I mean, southern as it gets. And one of the judges, it's like so, such an ordeal. One of the judges was from Providence, Rhode Island and flew down for the competition and she was interviewing the girls after they would dance, and they would all say, yes, ma'am. The kids are from Atlanta, Montgomery, Tallahassee, and they'd say, yes, ma'am. It kind of weirded her out. She's like, why everybody's calling me ma'am? How old do y'all think I am? Because in Providence, Rhode Island, it's considered old. So my convictions did not change for a minute, nor did my families, about whether or not it's polite to say yes, ma'am, or, or yes, sir. For all you kids out there, you live in Tallahassee, if your parents tell you to say it, say it, okay? But I started doing it all the time, and even still do to this day. Why? Because it's just what you do. It's just what you do. For how many people is the Christian faith simply just what you do? And has no conviction about the purpose of it whatsoever. But here's the deal. A Christianity that's just based on what you do in the routine and cultural acceptance is fading away rapidly. But there's going to become a time where it's not kosher to be a Christian at all. We're already starting to see it. In certain parts of the country, it's even happening faster. A whitewashed tomb outside of the cup, but not inside of the cup. You appear to have a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead kind of faith. is going to be a faith that goes away altogether as it continues to get more difficult. So what is Jesus doing here? He's warning them in grace. 
He's warning them in love to basically check yourself. And like, what is the motivation for the faith you claim to have? And every Christian of every area of maturity and growth, I think needs to revisit that question regularly. Now the opposite of that does not mean an emotional experience. That if your faith isn't this high emotional experience all the time, it means you're, you're dead. He's not talking about that. He's talking actually about your spiritual state, whether it's grounded in Christ or it's grounded in maybe what others think of you, reputation, tradition, custom, religion, all of which can be good things, religion, culture, tradition, customs, unless they become God things and those become the center of your faith rather than Jesus. They had a great reputation, but they were a church of whitewashed tombs. And then we get to Philadelphia, which is a different story. And he says this, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David. He gives us some biblical theology of how all the scriptures point to Christ, how they're all telling one story leading to the Messiah, that this actually is him. He says this one who opens and no one will close, who closes and no one opens. This authority, this power that no one else has. And here's that language again, I know your works. I know, fiery eyes, I can see. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. So here's Sardis, you're a big deal. And here's Philadelphia, you're not a big deal in the eyes of the world. Yet, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. As in, you might not be a big deal to the world, but you're a big deal to me. Not in a worship or glory kind of way, because God will not share his glory with anyone else. But if we could say, and I think it's right, that God's smile was upon this church. Why? Because they were being faithful. They were driven by the good news of who God is, and they had conviction, and no matter what was going on around them, they kept his word. He goes, note this, he says, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying. And there are some false teachers, those claiming to be religious who are not, who are around you. Here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna have the final word. I'm gonna vindicate, vindicate my name. Your efforts are not in vain. I'll make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to endure we see in the scriptures, if we love God, we'll obey his commandments. It's a sign of a love for God. The good news for us is oftentimes we're not great at that. And 1 John tells us that God loved us first. So we respond to the love of God, not to earn his favor, but because he loves us. We want to be people who are good sons and daughters, who are aware of these things. He said, because you've kept my command to endure, I'll also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on earth. In other words, you're going to be spared from judgment. He doesn't say they're going, to be spurned, they're going to be spared from any persecution. I can't find that in the scriptures. We're on earth, we're spared from any persecution. Rather, we're going to be spared from the judgment of God. This reminder is so important. I am coming soon. It might not seem soon in our eyes, but God's timetable and calendar is nothing like ours. So because he's coming soon, that means the one promise left to be fulfilled is still out there, and if he's kept every other promise, which he has, and he begins that text there to Philadelphia talking about how he's the son of David, like he has kept his promises, here's the Messiah. He says, I am coming soon, so hold on to what you have. 
so that no one takes your crown. In this age we're in, how sad if a church just focuses messages on leadership principles and self-help and 10 ways to do this and 10 ways to do that when the message that God has over and over again for his church is reminders of who he is and a challenge for them to persevere in faithfulness no matter what's coming at them culturally. There's a word for us every time we open our Bibles. The one who conquers, again, overcomes. I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Thinking, think of it being this eternal structure as we're added to the family once and for all, and he will never go out again. Jesus says that the sheep, he holds on to his shepherds. They're not gonna leave, he's the gate. I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. A new heavens, a new earth that's promised. In other words, those who are genuine believers, not just in head or in tradition, but in heart, who have converted to Christ, who have given their lives to Jesus, who are living for Christ, they're going to inherit that new world by God's grace and God's glory. And then he says those words again. Anybody who has ears to hear, listen. Like this is the word of our God. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's Jesus saying, Philadelphia, press on. I know you feel weak and unimpressive, but they had kept the word of God and had not denied his name. Do you feel helpless at work sometimes? Or in school? Culture changing all around you? My friend tells a story of, he was in Mississippi going to college 30 years ago, and his roommate was, Definitely not a believer. He wasn't confused about whether or not he would tell you he was not a Christian. My buddy would still try to invite him to church, have conversations. He'd just go, hey man, not my thing. You go do you, you know, that kind of language. And that was that. And they, but years later, decades later, now they're in their, they're in their 40s by this time. The old roommate called up my friend who he knew was a Christian. And he said, hey, can you recommend for me a good Baptist church along the Mississippi Gulf Coast? And he was like, What? You serious? It's the best phone call I've ever gotten. You want to go to church? Yeah, I got a list for you. Try these out. He goes, no, 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 man. I'm not into all that still. I'm just running for state representative. And you can't run for state representative on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi unless you're a member of a Baptist church. That was then. Not to be Baptist, but church. Maybe Mississippi needs to be Baptist, but... That was then, this is now. It's almost a liability and a hindrance now to associate your name, not with generic, dead, but looks okay Christianity, the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just in politics, but in many lines of work who are represented in this room. There can be a hindrance. And God has a word for you, and it's press on. You might feel weak, like the Philadelphia Christians did. You may feel helpless, like I'm sure they did. But he says, press on. Hold on to the faith. Remain faithful. He doesn't say get up on the table and preach a sermon. Well, I hope you find opportunities for gospel conversation. I would hope those you work with uh, know you're a believer. But he tells them to press on. You know, they feel weak. God does not see them that way because God sees them possessing his strength. Are they weak on their own? Absolutely, but when we're weak, he's strong. So they're actually stronger than they possibly could imagine because their name is written in the book of life. 
and God's name is figuratively written on their foreheads. And while their coworkers who might have the power and the leverage and the, condem- condens- you know, um, the condemnation now, Jesus has the final word. That's why in pushing people to the future, it's not a puzzle to figure out in Revelation. It's a certain hope that's coming their way. They can continue to give them the motivation to go and continue and hold on. See, on social media, there's all this deep D, you know, conversion. Just turn that noise off. Turn that noise off. Why? Because Jesus rose from the grave, and he's worth it. So Jesus tells them, press on, and Jesus says, basically he's telling Sardis, the reason why you can't be like Philadelphia is because you're dead inside. Here's Philadelphia, who's a lot less impressive than you, and they're alive. They're alive. I mean, they're living for Jesus. That's what drives them. Press on. We see this throughout the letters to Revelation, the dear church moments. In Ephesus, he tells them the way they're going to conquer is by remaining faithful to their first love. So he tells that church, press on. To the church in Smyrna, he says, when persecution comes your way, don't bail out. Press on. Keep the faith. To Pergamum, don't compromise with the world and accommodate the sexual revolution or the idols of this culture. Don't be misguided. He tells them, be discerning as you press on and keep on. Thyatira, don't make your perceived idea of loving others cause you to compromise the faith because that's not loving at all. Press on, keep on. Sardis, wake up to the fact that you are all hat and no cattle. That I'm not impressed with the things that you're impressed with. I want to see your hearts. I know your hearts are far from me, even though your activities seem to be good. And God encourages Philadelphia with promises. He tells them they have an open door. Access to the presence of God is what we should think of when we see an open door in the scriptures. Revelation 4.1, after this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. Access to God, to all his promises. Jesus said this in John 10, that language again, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. and will come in and go out and find pasture. God says, there might be closed doors all around you, but I have an open door for you. And it's fellowship and relationship with me. And ain't the whole thing, when God closes a door, he opens a window. I still have not found that in the Bible. What I see is God saying, there's a huge open door for you. And it's fellowship and relationship with me. I mean, what a privilege and a joy to know this is there for us, not just later, but now. So Sardis, he says, wake up. Philadelphia, press on. And Sardis, you can be like this. You can be like this. And again, I want you to see these warnings as, as grace from Jesus, as an act of love from, for God to choose to wake us up rather than leave us sleeping. You know, it's, it's not very loving if you have to be somewhere and you didn't set your phone alarm and your roommate or someone in your house knows that you're still sleeping but need to go somewhere to not wake you up. Here's God waking, calling the church to wake up. This is in the first century. So the call to wake up, it hasn't changed. It just looks different, just functions different. The issues are different. And 100 years from now and 1,000 years from now, if Jesus hadn't come back yet, there'll be new issues. 
The temptation is going to be to let social media guide the conversation, to freak out about everything, to declare the church in trouble, and all these type of things. We see Jesus going, hey guys, wake up. Hey Philadelphia, keep being faithful. Someone will return one day. In the meantime, there's a big open door fellowship and relationship with your God and your creator. So choose the one who's chosen you. Wake up. Like we are the people of God. How incredible is that to think of? When I say choose, I mean every day choose obedience based on a relationship you have with the one who loved you first. What great news that is. God has a word for his churches. Wake up for one and press on to the other. How cool would it have been to know if Sardis got the message and became more like Philadelphia? Uh, If you go there now, uh, there are definitely remnant and faithful believers, but there's not very many. My hope is that that is not said of our town and our nation a thousand years down the road. What we're doing now and the warnings that we're receiving now are gonna dictate the effectiveness of ministry for future generations who will come after us. But the good news is Jesus is the one building this church. It's not our works, but his. Let's see people who love the one who first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for warnings. We're grateful that in your grace that you don't punish us as our sins deserve because Jesus was punished in our place. So for the ones now in this room who claim to follow the one who rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and will one day return, Lord, let us be watchful. Let us be alert. Let us have self-awareness. Let us receive critique from others. Let us love. Let us have conviction. Lord, let us be alive. You have made us spiritually alive in our salvation, for we were dead, the scriptures tell us. We didn't need a life raft or a life preserver. We needed a new life. We needed to be born again. So we worship the one who brings dead things to life. Lord, now I ask that that will be a reality in our lives. That we won't just perceive to be alive to a world that values appearance. We'll be alive in the fact that we have hearts that are close to you. I'm thankful in the moments where we aren't close to you, that there's grace that you're still close to us. You're not the one who has moved. We have moved. So by your grace, I ask people in this room, you just bring them back again, bring them back again. I just know so many stories of people who maybe were off track and you used different things in their life, whatever it could have been, to grab a hold of them and to open their eyes to see your love for them, that you really are better. Lord, let us believe that you really are better than anything this world has to offer. How amazing our creator the one who even lets us pray to you by the blood of Christ, that you know us, that you love us, you delight in us. Let us respond to that by delighting you. Thank you for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.